like to read you a list of things that we will encounter in some way in 1 Samuel. Infertility, adultery, threatening, judgment, prophecy, idolatry, superstition, revival, politics, view of self, faith, obedience, independence, making a vow, the military draft, heroic combat, deep friendship, attempted murder, deceit and lying, actual murder, clandestine military activity, mercy, intervention, utter foolishness, polygamy, visiting a medium, capture and rescue, military victory, and suicide in the face of certain death. And people overlook the Old Testament. In these pages, we see all kinds of human activity which still continues. And in these pages, we see the God who is working through it all and above it all and whose control is absolute. In this morning service, we'll, we'll have six different men come and summarize for you portions of the book. And so you could, you could look at the book of First Samuel, which is really only half of the book. First and Second Samuel go together. But you could look at the book of First Samuel in three major sections and kind of key those with three main human heroes, Samuel, Saul, and David. And so I've assigned two men for each of those major sections and asked them to give a, an overview and to draw out for us and highlight for us just how God is presented and revealed in that section, maybe some things that we also see about mankind and, and uh, to help us really get a preview of what is to come. I don't know the last time you've read through 1 Samuel, but as we begin a sermon series in this book, I think it helps to know a little bit of what is coming. And I'm thankful for the men who are going to help us with that. Interspersed, we'll have some singing, some prayer, and then at the end I'll come back and, and try to bring a challenge to us in light of the message of this book. Who wrote the book of 1 Samuel? You say, well, it's named after Samuel, but he dies in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. And 2 Samuel is not prophecy. This is not something that he wrote before his death. There were, there were two other men listed. Uh, Nathan and Gad also recorded events from the life of David. But ultimately, we can't know for sure what human author was behind all of this. We do know that God was working through his spirit to bring us, to bring Israel and then really the people of God continuing this book. And through it all, I want in, in your mind, as you hear what these men say and bring before you maybe portions of the book that they read for you or summarize for you, through all of this, remember, God is working through human events. That's what he did in Israel's time. It's what he continues to do today. God is working through human events as he works, though, he expects his servants to do their parts. And so I want you to keep in mind, how are these servants of God doing as God has entrusted to them different responsibilities as God is building his kingdom? Remember, God is the ultimate focus, even as we study the lives of these men. As two wives, Peninnah and Hannah, 
Peninnah has produced children, Hannah has not. And Peninnah reminds Hannah of this fact whenever the family goes to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is located, to worship God. On one occasion, Elkanah's family makes the trip to Shiloh, and Hannah won't eat because of Peninnah's harassment. In her distress, Hannah goes to the tabernacle to pray and vows to God that if he gives her a son, she will give that son to the Lord's service all of his life. God grants Hannah's request, and she names her son Samuel, meaning heard of God, since God heard and gave Hannah that for which she asked. Hannah keeps her vow and takes Samuel to Shiloh to serve with the priest, saying in verses 27 through 28, For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. In chapter 2, Hannah prays a prayer that expresses her joy at God's kindness to her. In this prayer, she describes God as the one who owns and governs the world, who lifts up the downtrodden and pulls down the proud. She prays in verses 7 through 8, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Eli, the priest at Shiloh, is now Samuel's caretaker. Eli and his family are shown here in a most unflattering light. We learn that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are, according to the text, worthless. They dishonor God by stealing portions of the sacrifices and participating in sexual immorality. Eli rebukes his sons, but they don't listen. Later, a man of God comes to Eli and tells him God intends to judge the household of Eli because of his and his son's faithlessness. The man of God declares that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, will both die in one day. This will show that God has cast off Eli's household and consigned his descendants to poverty and death. As Eli's family descends, we see Samuel rise, as we are told in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. In chapter 3, God calls Samuel. He actually calls him audibly while he sleeps in the tabernacle. At Eli's direction, Samuel says to God, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And here Samuel does. God confirms to Samuel that the judgment he is going to bring on Eli's house is indeed coming soon. God says in verse 13, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Eli wants to know what God told Samuel, and Samuel, though reluctant, tells Eli of the coming judgment. Eli's response is not one of repentance, but rather resignation, as he responds with, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Word gets out that Samuel is receiving messages from God, and in verse 20 we read, All Israel from Dan, the northernmost point, to Beersheba, the southernmost point, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. In chapter 4, a battle between Israel and the Philistines results in a Philistine victory. The elders of Israel discuss the reason God's people would be defeated by their pagan enemies. Their conclusion? The Ark of the Covenant wasn't on the battlefield. So they send to Shiloh to have the Ark brought to them. 
among those who transport the ark from Shiloh to the soldiers' camp are Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The armies of Israel are invigorated when the ark arrives. They celebrate with loud shouting. The Philistines hear this and become very anxious, even remembering the Egyptian plagues and how God decimated that nation on behalf of Israel. But instead of fleeing, the Philistines fight with more enthusiasm and effort and win the battle convincingly, killing 30,000 Israelites. Among the dead are Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's unrighteous sons. The Philistines also carry off the Ark of the Covenant. When 98-year-old Eli hears from a battle survivor that not only was Israel defeated and that his two sons are dead, but that the Ark was also stolen, he falls over backwards, breaking his neck and dying. Phineas's wife, during labor pains, learns of her husband's death, of Eli's death, and the capture of the ark. She names the son to whom she gives birth Ichabod, which means not glorious. For she says, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And so God's word to Eli is fulfilled. To summarize, in chapters 1 through 4, we see God removing unrighteous Eli as a judge of Israel to make way for Samuel, a righteous judge and prophet. I see that Steve has some growing in grace to do. I'm going to be picking up uh, and covering chapters 5 through 7 this morning. In this section of 1 Samuel, the Philistines have captured the Ark of God after killing First, some 4,000 and then another 30,000 of Israel's men in battle. Including in that number, as Steve just told us, was Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli. What ensues afterwards is what I would characterize as nothing less than God's judgment on the Philistines, both for their attack on his people, Israel, but also, and more importantly, for their profaning of his glory. So two themes in chapter 5 through 7, God's judgment, God's glory. <clears throat> and I'm going to read a short section of chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the household or to the house of Dagon and set, up, set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the, altar, before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This scene is really remarkable. These priests of Dagon have placed the Ark of the Covenant alongside their false god, Dagon, perhaps as some sort of tribute to Dagon of their recent defeat of Israel, or equally as likely, as a way of further adding to and adorning their plethora of idols. But what happens here is both sobering and ironic. Sobering in the sense that God will not be mocked. He will not share his glory with any other god, especially the dunghill god Dagon. And it's ironic because the mercy seat of the ark will become the judgment seat. 
Our God is showing the absolute foolishness of worshiping idols. The beheading of Dagon demonstrates that unlike the true God, Dagon is dumb, deaf, and has no wisdom. With no hands, he has no power, brings no salvation, and cannot accomplish his will as the God of Israel can. Also, Dagon's not just toppled down here. He's prostrated in a state of humiliation before the God of Israel. He's defeated, brought to nothing, just as God will do to the Philistines. But God's not done here. He must defend his glory. And he does so as he did with the hard-hearted Egyptians with a plague of pestilence, his judgment. The hand of the Lord, verse 6 tells us, was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Their God has no hands, but the hand of Israel's God is heavy against them. What follows for the rest of chapters 5 and 6 is that the ark passes from city to city, among the Philistines for seven months, causing panic and pestilence wherever it goes. The Philistines, led mostly by superstition and divination, eventually devise a plan to assuage the wrath of the God of Hebrews by making essentially a guilt offering. So they say, let's make five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, chapter 6, verse 4. And verse 5 says, And give glory to the God of Israel. Imagine that. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. So the Philistines, they basically take two milk cows. They separate the cows from their, uh, from their calves. They make this cart to carry the ark. And they put the ark and a box with these golden relics in it. And they point the cows towards Beth Shemesh, which is a small town on the south side of Judah. And they say, if they wander in this direction, then we'll know that these evil things that have happened to us must be from this God of Israel. And if not, it was just a coincidence. So the plan works. The cows, they, they go to Beth Shemesh. And it says that as the... Um, as the Israelites saw them coming from afar, they, they rejoiced to see the ark being returned. But God did not stop short of his judgment, just with the Philistines. Um, even after taking the wood from this cart and sacrificing these cows, uh, it says that God struck 70 of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark. And verse 20 says, Then the, the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? And then beginning in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, it says, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. 
and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. But after this, the Philistines, they, they rise up again against the Israelites, and this time they cry out to God. Samuel intercedes for the nation in verse 7 of chapter 7. It says, So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. The beginning of peace with God is always confession of sins, isn't it? So Samuel takes a sacrificial lamb. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. And then in verse 10, it says that uh, Samuel made the sacrifice that as he was making it, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. And we see once again God's glory on display as he saves his people. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And it continues in verse 13 that the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So I want to conclude this section by just pointing out one other theme that runs through the period of Israel's history known as the time of the judges. And that period extends thrilly through Eli and Samuel and concludes that period. In the book of Judges, there is this recurring phrase, in those days there was no king. And four times in the book of Judges, it says this, there was no king in Israel. And two of those times it says, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Despite their frequent disobedience and often idolatrous hearts, it was during this kingless period in Israel's history that God continued to preserve his chosen nation by raising up men and even sometimes women to judge his people. And in his grace, he uses Eli and Samuel and this stopgap of judges, though one appeared to be more faithful than the other. And in chapter 4, following the record of Eli's death, we read in verse 20 that he had judged Israel 40 years. So chapter 5 begins at the end of Eli's presiding as judge over Israel, and chapter 7 closes with this statement about Samuel. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Well, the Philistines were a perennial thorn in Israel's side for much of their history, God often used the Philistines, as he does other enemy nations, to judge and humble his people Israel. And then he judges the very nation that he used to judge his own people. And that's what we see in 1 Samuel 5-7. through 7. While we don't see Israel completely relieved of their Philistine enemies in this section in 1 Samuel, or even Samuel's entire lifetime, what we know historically is, in the, is that in the year 604 B.C., the Philistines were finally destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. Of course, the nation of Israel was also among the spoils of Nebuchadnezzar's military conquest, but unlike the Philistines, they were not destroyed. God made an everlasting covenant with his people Israel to preserve them as a nation and to build his kingdom through them. And yet, they were always looking for a better king. And I trust that our study of this book will point us to that better king. If I had to choose a book title for 1 Samuel 8 through 12, it would be A King in Place of the King.
semicolon, be careful what you wish for. In 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 12, we'll see how Israel will shift from it or transition from a theocracy where God directly governs them through judges to a monarchy with a human king. The people of Israel want a king. They desire to be like the other nations surrounding them. Samuel, who was quite old at this time, is the last judge and a prophet is initially displeased with the request, but God instructs Samuel to listen to their demand. Chapter 8 begins with Samuel's sons being corrupt judges, which prompts the elders of Israel to approach Samuel and request a king. Although Samuel is upset, God reassures him that the people's rejection is not directed to him, Samuel, but towards God's rule over him. God reminds Samuel this has been Israel's pattern since he delivered him from Egypt. They have forsaken the true God and served other gods. The desire for a human king is a rejection of, a rejection of God as their ultimate leader. In God's sovereignty, he allows the establishment of the monarchy. It's a reminder that sometimes God gives us over to our desires and the consequences of our sin. In chapter 9, we are introduced to Saul. The text describes Saul as a tall, young, handsome, and quite impressive man from the tribe of Benjamin. One day, Saul and a uh, servant of his father's were out looking for lost donkeys when they encounter Samuel. The previous day, the Lord reveals to Samuel that he'll send him a man from the land of Benjamin. And the Lord says to Samuel, you shall anoint him to be the prince over my people. He shall deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. This, events, this event marks the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan to establish a monarchy. Through chapters 9 to 11, Saul's rise to his kingship is detailed. He is chosen by God. His anointed is accompanied by divine signs. Saul is initially humbled and reluctant. However, as circumstances unfold, Saul shows leadership qualities and a victory over the Ammonites, solidifying his position as king. In chapter 12, Sam, Samuel addresses the people of Israel, highlighting God's faithfulness through their history and emphasizing a significant, the significance in obeying God's commands. Samuel recounts instances where God rescues Israel, making it clear that the desire for a king is their desire for a king is a deviation from God's intended plan. But nevertheless, God in his wisdom provided them with the king. Samuel concludes his address with a dramatic display of God's power, invoking thunder and rain during the dry season. This serves as a visible confirmation of God's displeasure with the people's request for the king. Despite their disobedience, Samuel encouraged, Samuel encouraged them to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. The text underscores three lessons about mankind and God's sovereignty. First, it highlights the human, humanity's tendencies to seek word, worldly solutions and earthly leaders rather than relying on God. The Israelites' desire for a king to be like other nations reflects lack of trust in God. Secondly, 
It emphasized the importance of obedience to God's commands. This narrative illustrates that when people's bad choices lead to bad consequences, God remains faithful and provides a path for redemption. Lastly, the text teaches that God can work through imperfect human leaders to accomplish his greater plan. Despite Saul's flaws and the people's misguided desire, desires, God uses these events to pave the way for the future establishment of a kingdom that will ultimately lead to the fulfillment of his promises. In summary, 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 12 depicts a transition from the judges to the monarchy, showcasing God's sovereignty, human tendencies, and the importance of obedience in his unfolding divine plan. All right, I was given chapters 13, 14, and 15. Chapter 13 uh, can be divided into two sections, the first being uh, Saul fights with the Philistines. Uh, First, the chapter begins with Saul and Jonathan fighting the Philistines in two separate camps. Jonathan and his men defeated the Philistines at Geba. After this loss, the Philistines surrounded Israel, causing them to become fearful and hide themselves. In verses 6 and 7, states, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. The second part of the chapter is Saul's unlawful sacrifice. Saul waited for Samuel for seven days to come to Gilgal, as Samuel instructed him to do so, but Samuel did not come, which leads us to verse 9. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Soon after this, Samuel comes to Saul and inquires as to why Saul has acted so foolishly. Samuel then condemns Saul because of his unlawful sacrifice. Verse 14, Samuel says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you to do. The chapter ends with Saul's army now at only 600 men, and the only men carrying weapons were Saul and Jonathan. Verse 14, Jonathan defeats the Philistines. Jonathan, along with his armor bearer, just the two of them, traveled along the rocky terrain where the Philistine garrisons are uh, located opposing uh, um, Israel. Verses 6 and 7, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish, Behold, I am with you heart and soul. The Lord gave the Philistines into the hands of Israel through the faith of Jonathan and his armor bearer that day. Verse 20 says, Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. In verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. Next, we have Saul's rash vow to Israel's army. In verse 24, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. 
So none of the people had tasted food. But Jonathan was unaware of Saul's oath. So Jonathan ate from the honey in the forest where the army was now located. The section goes on to say how the Israelites struck down the Philistines in many areas. After this, Saul constructed his very first altar to the Lord. Saul then inquires of the Lord regarding returning to fight the Philistines, but the Lord did not respond to Saul. Saul discovered that Jonathan had broken his oath. Verse 43, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him, I have tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, now I will die. But the people declared that Jonathan should not be put to death because he just won this great victory over the Philistines, thus Jonathan was saved. The chapter ends with Saul, a summary of Saul fighting Israel's enemies. In verse 47, it says, When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And lastly, in chapter 15, it can be described in one sentence, and that is the Lord rejects Saul as king. Through Samuel, God commands Saul to go and to strike down Amalek and devote them to destruction. In verse 3, it says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul then defeats the Amalekites and took Agag, their king, alive. In verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and he would not destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The Lord then states that he has regretted making Saul king. From this battle, Saul sets up a monument for himself. Samuel then arrives, and in confrontation with Saul, he asks why he had not followed the commandment of the Lord. In verse 14, Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Instead of repenting, Saul chooses to blame the army as to why he, had, as to why he went against the commandment of the Lord. In verse 21, But the people took of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel then rebukes Saul, declaring that God desires obedience over sacrifice. The chapter then ends with Saul attempting to ask forgiveness, and Samuel ultimately finishing what Saul should have done. In verses 32 and 33, Samuel states, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag sent to him, came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So some main takeaways from this passage. Ultimately, God is bringing about the rejection of Saul as Israel's king to usher in the anointing of King David. God is accomplishing his redemptive plan by continuing to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Disobedience to God is a main theme in these three chapters. In response, God continues to show his faithfulness to, the, to Israel despite of King Saul's sin. Some key ideas. King Saul's disobedience, rebellion, arrogance, and rejection of God's word. Then we have Jonathan's confidence in the Lord led Israel to victory over the Philistines. And lastly, we have Samuel's obedience to God's command. We learn from this section that God is going to fulfill his promise 
regardless of the acts of man. God uses both believers and unbelievers to bring about his ultimate plan. Good morning. This section of chapters uh, 16 to uh, 23 shows a continuation of the divine interplay of Samuel, Jonathan, and Saul with the uh, impending coming of David, one of the most important figures in all of Scripture. And here we see uh, God's miraculous uh, preservation of David against his enemies, both internal and external, as preparation for his imminent kingship. Um, Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, the Lord sends Samuel on a mission to anoint David as the future king. Saul is plagued by an evil spirit that is alleviated by David's music. In verse 6, um, it says, When they had entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is standing before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And down in verse 10, So Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the boys? And, the young, and he said, The youngest is still left, but behold, he is tending the sheep. So Samuel said to Jesse, Send word and bring him, for we will not take our places at the table until he comes here. In, verse seven, in chapter 17, we see one of the most famous stories really in all of history um, of right over might, the ultimate victory of the underdog. A mighty Philistine soldier named Goliath ridicules the Israelites. David travels to the battlefield and kills him with his sling. The Israelites attack and force the Philistines to retreat. In verse 45 through 47, David replied to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the ranks of Israel, whom you have defied. The very day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, I will cut you, I will kill you and cut off your head, and I will give the carcasses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. All the earth shall know that there is a God in Israel, and this whole assembly shall know that the Lord can give victory without sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver you into our hands." Chapter, chapter 18, uh, Saul becomes jealous of David's military victories. After failing to kill David with his own spear, Saul relegates David to the army's front line and hopes he will be killed. David succeeds in battle, marries Saul's daughter, Michal, and becomes more popular than the king. So rather than David's marriage eliminating him as a menace, it only brought him into the inner circle of legitimate contenders for the throne. In verse 18, verse 1, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that Jonathan committed himself to David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul t- 
overtook him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. In verse 7, David's popularity supersedes Saul's. The woman sang as they danced and they chanted, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. In chapter 19, um, Saul fails to kill David. Jonathan courageously helps, spares, uh, helps spare his life. Michal helps David flee to Ramah, where he stays with Samuel. Michal was David's first wife, quick-witted, and a worthy successor in a long line of biblical heroines. Verse 1 of, of 19. Now Saul told his son Jonathan and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan informed David, saying, My father Saul is seeking to put you to death. Now then, please be on your guard in the morning and stay in a hiding place and conceal yourself. And then skipping down to 18. So, Saul fled and, so David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah. And he informed him of everything that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naath. But it was reported to Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naath in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. In chapter 20, um, David angers Saul when he skips uh, the meal for the new moon, the, the, um, uh, the important festival meal. Jonathan betrays his father again by helping David flee for his life. And in verse 12 it says, Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of, of Israel, is my witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he has a good feeling towards you, I shall then send word to you and inform you. If it pleases my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to me and more so, if I fail to inform you and send you away, so that you may go in safety, and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. In chapter 21, we see that David convinces the priest Ahimelech to provide him with consecrated bread and a sword. David flees to the Philistine city of Ashish, where he feigns madness. In verse 3 it says, And then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever can be found. The priest answers David and says, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. And if only the young men had kept themselves from women. If only the young men had kept themselves from women. David answered, and the priest said to him, Be assured, women have been denied us previously as when I left, and the bodies of the young men were consecrated, although it was an ordinary journey. How much more, how much more will their bodies be consecrated today? In chapter 22, we see that David escapes from the Philistines and safeguards his parents with the king of Moab. With the exception of one son named Abiathar, Saul has Ahimelech's, Ahimelech's priestly family killed. 
And then in chapter 23, we see that the Philistines attack Keilah and are driven away by David. Saul chases David into the mountains, but fails to capture him. Again, summing up, the key theme here is the preservation of David from his enemies, wherever they may be, in preparation for his vastly important kingship as a, as a prologue to the coming of the king of kings. Some years ago, I wanted to teach the children that this book, from cover to cover, had one purpose. Uh, we find it in John 20, 31. Uh, why were these things written? Uh, so that we would believe, and that believing we'd have life. And so I, I created this series called The Big Picture. We started in Genesis. The goal was to get to Revelation. Uh, the big picture. What is the big picture? Uh, and I told him that the big picture was God's plan of redemption. And we've seen all through Scripture how that plan is going to be fulfilled. Howard helped me refine that a little bit and, and get the kingdom at the end um, of that uh, plan of redemption and, and make our focus there because that's what's so important, uh, that that's, that's what's ahead for us. But we're looking at some snapshots uh, that are part of the big picture as we go through 1 Samuel. God has sovereignly protected David from Saul for the fulfilling of his own divine purposes. In the closing chapters of 1 Samuel, it appears that the tables maybe have turned somewhat. Uh, David, the fugitive, the one who's being pursued by Saul, uh, he's, he's running like a criminal, actually hiding out. Well, he's given two opportunities to take out his enemy. Um, but David recognized that the Lord himself had placed Saul on the throne of Israel. Thus, judgment and removal of Saul had to be left to the Lord. So both times, he refused to raise his hand to the Lord's anointed. As evidence of that in uh, chapter 24... He showed Saul the corner of his robe. He had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. He was waiting for his time. He knew he was uh, going to be on the throne, but he knew that for now, Saul was the Lord's anointed. In chapter 25, all Israel mourns the death of, of Samuel. And then comes the story you're probably pretty familiar with, Nabal and Abigail. While hiding out in the wilderness, David and his men took it upon themselves to protect the flocks of Nabal. A deed of kindness which was met with contempt by Nabal, whose name fittingly means fool. Well, he married a wise wife. And Abigail, recognizing the Lord's choice of David to be king, sought to prevent him from doing something that would jeopardize his future. How was David reacting to the rebuff that he received from Nabal? And um, well, he was a warrior, he was a conqueror. He wiped out um, a lot of people. And so Abigail intervened and went to David to prevent him from jeopardizing his future, endangering the, the throne, and violating God's will by 
taking personal vengeance and anger. In chapter 26 is that second time that David spares Saul's life. Again, he recognized that Saul was the man, even though he knew that what Saul was doing was wrong and he, he had not followed God. Chapter 27, even though God had told David to stay in Judah, anxious thinking and fear led David to kind of waver in his trust for the Lord, I guess. And he sought protection from the Philistine enemies of Israel. So um, David still, uh, the man of God who was doing what God wanted him to do, uh, led his men to conquer the Jeshurites, the Gersites, the Amalekites, leaving no, no survivor, no survivors in order that he could report back to Achish that, uh, you know, he had, he had had all these conquests, but then Achish would not learn the true nature of his desert exploits. And Achish trusted David. He asked him to be his bodyguard for life. We move on to chapter 28. Saul disguises himself and goes to the medium of Endor. As soon as uh, he approached her, she, she said, you know what Saul has said. You know that this is illegal. I can't do this. He promised that no punishment would come to her. So she asked him who he wanted her to conjure up. And he asked her to bring up the spirit of Samuel. Whoa, that sent panic into her um, very being. And when she saw Samuel, she cried out. She recognized Saul and you know, wanted to know why he'd done this. Things did not go well from that point on. Um, he didn't get the message he really wanted, uh, I don't think, because Samuel's message for Saul was clearly that Israel and Saul would be given to the Philistines and Saul and his sons would see him face to face very soon, uh, the next day actually. So we come to the close of this section in chapters, in chapter 29, the Philistines reject David, the Amalekites had raided Ziklag and taken David's wives and all those. They are captive. They had not killed anyone. They took them all captive. And then David goes and defeats the Amalekites, rescues everyone. We come down to, that's in chapter 30. And then in chapter 31, the death of Saul. The Philistines were fighting Israel. They had overtaken them. His sons were killed. The battle was raging heavily against Saul. In, in verse 3 of 31, it says, And the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword, pierce me through, lest the uncircumcised come and pierce me and make sport of me. But he wouldn't do it. He could not. So that's when Saul took his sword and fell out in himself. 
His armor bearer, re realizing how bad this looked, fell on his own sword and killed himself as well. So where are we in the plan of God's redemption? Is God still on the throne? Is he still in charge? Is he sovereign? Absolutely. He's still in control. The big picture is still God's plan of redemption. And he's going to see to it that every bit of it is fulfilled. Let's stand now and sing a song that we introduced some weeks ago, some months ago, by William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Amen. Wonderful message through song. Men, thank you for your faithful revealing of scripture in that you opened it, pointed to it, and explained it. Thank you for that faithful labor. As God rules over human events, and that rule continues, but as we have seen that rule through the pages of 1 Samuel, he expects his servants to step up and be faithful in what he calls them to do. He expects them to do their parts. As for Samuel, what do we see from Samuel? There are many lessons we could draw out. Samuel was faithful. His moment matters, but it is fleeting. It is short. See, in chapter 3, was, as was already brought out, God first revealed his word to Samuel. And Samuel had a very difficult task when he received that first word from God. Can you imagine this? Go and tell the man who's been caring for you, your mentor, that God's severe judgment is coming to his family. That's how... Samuel's particular ministry begins. Stepping up, Samuel, do your part. He's still young when the people trust in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and go to their slaughter. The, the army goes to its slaughter and the Ark is captured. When he goes to bed that night, which very possibly wasn't in the same place, people had to flee, the Ark is gone. And yet he continues growing and maturing. He later intercedes for the people. Uh, he sees God bring victory over their enemies. But then as he ages and as he places his sons into positions of responsibility, those sons of his, very similar to Eli's sons, pervert things and Israel calls for a king. And so... Samuel is told, to, uh, is told God's word and he passes it on to Israel, warning what a king would do to them. The people refuse and his voice and God tells Samuel to listen to the voice of the people. Samuel makes a difference for a time. That difference is there, especially you see it in, verse, in chapter seven. He makes a difference for a, for a time, but the people, have they truly changed in the end? And maybe if we can put ourselves in Samuel's shoes. What have I accomplished? What has changed through my ministry? 
His time matters. And God calls Samuel to do his part. But can some of us not put ourselves in Samuel's shoes and feel that frustration of wanting to accomplish more and wanting to see people actually make real change and follow God? But he is merely a man, maybe a hero in Israel's history, but he's still a man, limited, and he can only accomplish so much. His moment is fleeting, and yet it still matters. And Samuel doesn't have the whole perspective as God does, even as he slowly fades from the scene. That's not much unlike what he calls us, those whose names will quickly pass from history, also to do. We have our parts, do we not, within the plan of God, and we don't see all the connections We don't see how God will use that within everything that he's doing. Maybe we see glimpses of that over time, and we're encouraged. What kind of splash does my life ultimately make? What kind of splash does your life ultimately make? That's for God to arrange. He's told us through his word. He's outlined for us what our responsibilities are. And so, believer, do your part. Maybe you will wrestle with feeling like you're inferior or you make so little difference. But in the end, is that not what our judge, Jesus Christ, is ultimately to determine? Have we been faithful? Have we done our part as he's entrusted it to us? One challenge for the younger generation in all of that is to hear the encouragement and, uh, from others and the caution that time is quickly f- fleeting. And one challenge for the younger generation is to, that, that, that you not ignore the urgency passed on to you by others. Time really is short. Ten years, yes, takes a lot of days, and yet a decade passes in but a moment. And so use your days well. Press on. Yes, you are young, and maybe a lot of people overlook you, but these days matter. So younger generation here, do not belittle, do not ignore the advice passed on to you from older believers. You who are in the prime of life, do not lose focus as your preparation for life really comes to fruition and as the responsibilities of life seem to increase almost by the day, it's so easy to be drawn off to, the, to one side or to the other. And you might not feel like you have the strength of being in the prime of life. Much will pull away your focus. No, do what God has entrusted to you. Fulfill your responsibilities. Be faithful now is your moment as well. Step up and obey. Hear what God has said through his word and do what he has called you to do. And to the elderly, do not lose hope. You might look back and perhaps for you, you, in some ways you have the clearest picture of life because you have lived it. You have seen how quickly the days pass. Perhaps you bear some of the regrets of choices that you have made. Perhaps you feel the, the shortness of your arms and the weakness of your strength. But do not lose hope. Now is still your moment. 
And maybe you can take heart from Samuel. Yes, his moment was fleeting. Yes, your moment, my moment is fleeting. But it still matters. And you are not ultimately the one to determine how all of that works out. When we turn to Saul, sadly, do we not see that left to oneself, life gets ugly? Left to oneself, life gets ugly. Oh, he, he starts in dramatic form in a way. He's handsome. He stands out. He's the people's choice in a way. God chooses him, and yet he resembles what the people wanted. Here is a king. We can compare this guy with the kings of the other nations. And yet, is there not warning in chapter 10? When he is supposed to be introduced to the people, they have to search for him. And they find him among the baggage. Israel, this is not a good sign. Behold your king among the bags. He offers burnt offering in chapter 13 unlawful sacrifice. Samuel tells him his kingdom will not continue. He makes a foolish oath, oath in chapter 14. He starves his men. He almost has his son killed. In chapter 15, God commands him to destroy the Amalekites. Saul disobeys. I'm going to read verses 22 and 23 in chapter 15. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected, what? The word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. In some ways, Saul's an enigma, isn't he? I mean, you could ask the question, is this guy really a believer in God? Is he an unbeliever? It's just a confusing man to study. But in the end, he goes his own way. God leaves him to himself, and it just increasingly becomes worse and worse. He tries to kill David in chapter 19. He orders the murder of priests in chapter 22. He seeks advice, as already been pointed out, in chapter 28 from him. A medium, a person who talks with the dead and then ends his life by suicide in chapter 31. He's a picture of one who, left to himself, just becomes worse and worse. He rejected God's word. He rejected God's rule, and he suffered for it. And so the caution to us Today, I believe from Saul, just looking at the big picture, reject the word of the Lord at your own risk, at your own cost. It might seem small in the moment, but be assured that sin grows very quickly. The judgment is beyond your own choosing, and the ugliness of life will quickly follow. And then we come to David. And I'm going to take a bit of a risk here, perhaps. I don't think it's risky because it's scriptural. Yes, David is essential within the, the, the story of scripture. 
And yet, what we see from David, even in 1 Samuel, is that partial obedience brings mixed results. I know that we hold David. If I, keep, if I mix him up with Daniel, I'm sorry. That's just a heads-up warning there. David, I know we keep David on a high pedestal. Here's a man of faith. We saw in chapter 16, the Lord looks on the heart. God found in David true faith. But it's back and forth, even in this book. He fights Goliath in the name of the Lord of hosts in chapter 17, but then he lies to Ahimelech the priest in chapter 21, and Ahimelech innocently ends up being wrapped up in Saul's pursuit of David and as a result is killed, is murdered. In chapter 24, he could kill Saul, but he refuses to do so. In chapter 25, though, he plans to murder Nabal. And that would have been wrong. Is that not a bit of foreshadowing on what David might be willing to do to his fellow man? Abigail saves him there by God's grace. Chapter 25 also, we see that he takes two more wives. Yes, David, you're going to be king, but you don't need more wives. God's plan is one. So also we see a bit of foreshadowing here that perhaps David has some problems towards women as well. I believe he does. I know the mindset of kings was have many wives and then you have many, many children and you protect your line, but is God not sovereign over the Davidic line? He doesn't need help. David has no need to go outside of God's plan for one wife. Chapter 26, we see positive. He refuses to kill Saul. Chapter 30, we see positive as he goes out with his men raiding. Others come in and take their families. And this is truly a low moment for David. And yet, in chapter 30, he strengthens himself in the Lord his God. And later he praises God when they are able to rescue their families. So while the account of David is only partial, David does show true faith while also, also showing sins that would later get worse. Does this not reflect also real life for us? Those little sins, at least we think they're little, can, can quickly grow and bring devastation later on. And that's often how we live, partial faith, partial obedience, and consequences to follow. I take comfort, even though we have these three heroes, I take comfort, though, that there are others in the book, and I don't want to overlook Hannah. See, Hannah is the one that said, way back in chapter 2, verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, there is no rock like our God. We don't know much about Hannah. We know some things, but not much. To me, Hannah resembles more of the common person who had faith in God, who was faithful in her part, and whom God used, and who had an amazing view of God, a high view of God rejoiced in her God, depended in her, upon her God, and praised her God. 
and was used by her God. What would it be like to have a whole church and to see God working through that church as it believed and rejoiced in truth like 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There's no foundation. There's no safe haven. There's no one in whom we can trust like the God of the Bible. And so even with all these heroes, really I end with Hannah. You don't have to be a hero, and you probably won't be. I don't have to be a hero, and I probably won't be. God is working over all of these things. His plan and his glory is what it's all about. And so, believer, live by faith, obey God's word, and do your part. And along the way, rejoice in those moments when you get to see firsthand the glory of God. God, thank you for our privileged opportunity to hear from multiple men this morning, really just pointing back to your truth. Please increase our faith. Grow our humility before you, the awesome, infinite, only true God. There is none holy like you, and we rejoice in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.